Hello and welcome to India Speak, a podcast by the Center for Policy Research. This is the first episode of a new interview series to commemorate CPR's 50th anniversary. Every month, we plan to bring you a flagship conversation with a CPR faculty member on their research, policy practice, and engagement with the most critical questions of our age. We begin this month with Navroz Dubash, a professor at CPR, where he also runs the initiative on climate, energy, and environment. Navroz is one of the world's most renowned experts on climate change, having worked on the subject since the 1990s, well before it became a household term. Over his wide-ranging career, Navroz has authored landmark research papers, edited agenda-setting volumes, written two award-winning books, and occupied key roles on a number of official and advisory committees in India and at the global level. He was a coordinating lead author for the IPCC, the United Nations panel which publishes landmark reports on the state of climate change research. His work also led to CPR being the overall anchor institution and technical knowledge partner for the Indian government's long-term low emissions and development strategy. I spoke to Navroz Dabash about what it was like to work on climate change back in 1990, well before it was in vogue. Whether it is frustrating to still be going over the questions of climate change versus development that have been around since then, what it was like to help the Indian government draft its strategy for low emissions development, why it's important to not just follow the Western narrative on climate change, and what advice he has for young scholars entering this important field. Thank you for being with us here. Um, I, I sort of wanted to start off at the the very beginning. Uh, if I'm if I'm not incorrect, you started off uh, studying engineering many years ago, before deciding that was not exactly for you. So, could you tell us a little bit about how you came to the policy world? Was there an underlying interest, or did you sort of stumble onto it? Um, so actually, yeah, I, I, I did I did trod the uh, South Asian path of uh, you know being an engineer. Um, and as an undergraduate, uh, you know, I was fortunate to be uh, in a place where you weren't locked into your choices. Uh, this is in a U.S. university, and I found myself enjoying my uh, political science, history, economics much more than I was enjoying my engineering. And so, um, at one point, there was a fork in the road, um, and uh, I had the advantage of of, of basically. Uh, starting out with second year of engineering. So I had, in a sense, I had, I had a bit more flexibility. And um, I decided that I really didn't want to be an engineer for the rest of my life. And therefore, why waste the opportunity to study things I really did enjoy? Um, and I had a conversation actually with a senior, somebody who is now uh, uh, you know, a friend of CPR, somebody who's in, at, at the Harvard Business School, who essentially was also drifting away from engineering and encouraged me to take the step earlier. Um, and I had lots of openings. I had the chance to go and um, uh, walk through the Narmada Valley at the time when that was like the big flashpoint around development and environment. It was a very formative experience for me. I met people like Meta Padkar and others. Um, uh, and... I just found it tremendously exciting. So I decided to just, uh, uh, you know, roll the dice. Um, I had a very tough conversation with my father, as you can imagine, um, who in later years, to his credit, 
would um, read annual reports of companies and they start talking about ESG, you know, environmental and social uh, investing and say, well, maybe you were a little bit ahead of your time. <laughs> but at the time, it was a tough family conversation. Um, and uh, I decided to roll the dice and, and I decided to do public policy. Um, and so that was, uh, and that and that opened lots of interesting doors for me. Was there anyone in the in the milieu and in, in the family or in the, in the extended space? I mean, for many people, I think it would be rare to know someone who's already in the field. Um, so, so was it really that sort of left turn for the family? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, not just left turn uh, uh, in terms of the subject matter. Um, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm trying to think hard. I think there was maybe one cousin who had a PhD, but otherwise. This, we're not from a family of academics. Um, uh, my father was a naval officer. Uh, and so very much sort of, you know, that pre-liberalization uh, uh, generation of, of, of um, yeah, you know, what was actually probably at least in mentality a middle class. Uh, of course, in economic terms, far wealthier than, than, than most other Indians. But, but you know, a, a naval officer which we probably puts, slots us best. Um, and so it was unusual. Uh, it was unusual. And I think that, and I think also, you know, having studied at a relatively elite university, choosing to spend my summer coming back and walking through the Narmada Valley was something that also was a little bit of a head scratching experience. I, you know, I hiked through the valley uh, and, and met various people. I went on sort of fact finding missions and whatnot. So that was a, a little bit of a, a, a strange journey. What's really interesting is that after that, I. Uh, as part of my education, uh, I had to do what are called policy conferences and policy task forces. And one of them was around climate change. I wasn't particularly interested in climate change. Uh, but these two strands together, which were both came out of my undergraduate experience, really have defined much of my future work. I got interested in development and development questions. Who defines it? How is it defined? What happens to the underprivileged? And that was at the very, very, very early days of the climate conversation in 1989. And we did a little undergraduate experiment where we did a mock negotiation. And because, in fact, uh, uh, it was so early, it got published. And because it had the, the grand sounding name of the Princeton Protocol, people assumed that it was a bunch of faculty who had written it. In fact, it was a bunch of undergrads. And so it got cited as, as, as such. Um, and uh, uh, and then my first job actually uh, was also in that area. And maybe I should just briefly describe what that was about. Yes, yes, please. So when I was looking for a job, um, uh, I, uh, as usual, as is typical for people in that state of, uh, of 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 life, I got a couple of rejections, got a bit dispirited, and then I went to one of the organizations that had worked with the activists uh, uh, around the Narmada Valley, seeking a job with them and said, look, we don't really have any work, but our colleagues who work in the climate area do. And I said, well, I'm kind of, I know that area too, and I'm kind of interested. So, um, so they said, okay, we'll put you in touch. And it turns out that that was 1990. In two years time, the Rio Earth Summit was about to be uh, held. They were starting, starting the climate, what has now become the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change before those negotiations occurred, uh, there was a proto-network of civil society organizations, which were mostly dominated by 
American and a couple of European and Australian organizations, and they were environmental organizations. They said, look, um, we don't really understand how this plays in the rest of the world. And they also, to be perfectly candid, uh, were shared the fact that, look, you know, if we show up and ask to be part of these conversations and it's a bunch of developed country, typically white men, you know, why would the rest of the world want us there? We need to have a broader spectrum. So they hired me at the ripe age of 21 to set up a global network on climate change from Asia, Africa, and Latin America and bring in people from all these parts of the world. So it was just an absolutely incredible first job. I had no idea what I was doing. I was given a fax machine um, uh, and a printer, uh, a photocopier. And I, had, I remember I had, you know, I, didn't, I had a filing cabinet and I created two files, faxes in and faxes out because I really didn't know what it meant to be in an office or how to organize one's work. And I started faxing people around the world uh, and talking to people and trying to bring in uh, people into the conversation. Among the people we brought in back in the day were Anil Agarwal and Sunita Narayan, for whom climate change was some kind of external uh, 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 issue. And they weren't really paying attention at the time. Uh, they felt it was a distraction from, uh, uh, understandably in that context, from the real bread and butter livelihood environmental issues. Um, but I kept sending them FedEx packages of documents so that they would have material to them and 20 or 30 other people around the world. And over time, they, they you know, to their credit, they very much drew the links between the issues they cared about and climate change and uh, became, part of the, uh, became part of the network. Uh, and then wrote this landmark paper, uh, Global Warming in an Unequal World, uh, that, that still gets cited widely uh, today. But, you know, for me, it was amazing. I, I, I was just trying to uh, find interesting creative people to bring into this network. Uh, so when I was hired, actually, for the job, um, I was to be located at the Environmental Defense Fund in the U.S., but within, with a steering committee of existing CAN members. And when I met the director of EDF, uh, who was a very young guy at the time, a guy called Fred Krupp, um, he asked me about what I did, my interests, and so on and so forth. And as I talked, he said, you know, frankly, you don't seem that interested in climate change. You seem more interested in development. Um, and I said, well, that's true. But that's going to be true of most of the people who I'm trying to persuade to work on this issue. So it's probably a good thing that I understand where they're coming from. Right? And he laughed and said, okay, that's a really smart Alec answer, but I'll, I'll take it. Um, but it, it is interesting reflecting back, right? This strand of how do you bring development into conversation with climate is something that has more or less dominated my career in the years since. Yeah, I, I, I meant to say there, it's, it's hard even for, for those of us who then grew up hearing about climate change almost all of our lives to, to imagine what that was like when you had to persuade people that this was something that, that mattered. Um, I, I, I'm I'm curious. Even then, later at the Climate Action Network, and even at Berkeley, where I my understanding is you got to work sort of from a multidisciplinary angle on this. Like, what was that a process where you had to convince yourself also that this was something that was that was worth pursuing and, and sticking to? Yeah, absolutely. In fact, I I after my two years working on setting up the Climate Action Network. And during that period, I got a bunch of substantive exposure. I got to meet with amazing people. Uh, um, so, for example, you know, the people who worked on this from the U.S. side were typically Clean Air Act activists. 
right? People who had worked or advocacy or researchers. People who worked in from the developing countries were either local natural resource management people, right, who are beginning to see or understand the impacts of climate change, or at the other end of the spectrum, people who worked on economic negotiations like the WTO, who came to the climate negotiations with a very jaundiced eye as kind of a north-south colonial uh, uh, conversation. Uh, and it was very hard to bring all these people together. And in fact, in our first meeting, where we were 20, 25-odd people, the developed country folks said, all right, so as a civil society movement, let's propose that developed countries reduce their emissions by X percent, I think it was like, you know, 50% by the year 2000 in 10 years' time, which is ridiculous looking back on where we are now. And developing countries do the same thing a few years later, right? And immediately some of the WTO activists in the room said, hang on a second, that basically would commit us in perpetuity to a lower level of emissions. And the developed country folks kind of scratched their heads and said, huh, maybe that's true because that was the Montreal Protocol model, right? And in a weird kind of way, we've been having the same conversation ever since. That how do you allocate who gets to emit how much is the political spine of the climate negotiations and it's, it's rooted uh, uh, in, in that, right? So from that point, to me, the interesting question was really, if you care about development, by which I mean livelihood chances and not just GDP, right, and decent quality of life of people, what is the relationship of, of doing so to carbon, right? And how does it tie to both local choices and global choices? So when you ask if I had to persuade myself, you know, when I, when I went on to do um, grad school, I had a, a hangover of a question I had to ask myself, which is about carbon markets, because I really was very suspicious. I remain very suspicious of carbon, uh, carbon markets because in a lot of cases, uh, uh, and this gets a bit technical, it's not about a market of an actual credit. It's about what's called an offset, which is, are you reducing emissions from a hypothetical baseline? There's lots of scope to gain that baseline. And that's, again, a conversation that hasn't gone away for 20 years. The Guardian just had a series of articles on exactly this point in the context of forest uh, uh, offsets. So after I dealt with my hangover and wrote my master's thesis on this, you know, I said, okay, I actually want to step back. And I had a, some kind of romantic idea of an elite Indian, probably coming from my Narvada experience, uh, uh, not knowing uh, much about rural India, which is where the real India lies, so on and so forth, all those kind of romantic urban uh, elite uh, visions. And I said, I need to find a way of kind of getting out there. And so I, after a bunch of reading, I zoomed in on um, the use of water markets in Gujarat, which were a very interesting empirical phenomenon. These Gujarati farmers were selling water back and forth within villages with these, you know, two, three, four kilometer long pipelines, very complex uh, 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 markets. And some economists are saying this is a great thing. And some sociologists and political scientists are saying this is pure exploitation. And I wanted to figure out which of the two it was, right? Uh, so I did my master's, my PhD thesis on that. And I wrote a book called Tuber Capitalism and so on and so forth. And I didn't think about climate for a while, right? For several years, in fact. And I got deep into agrarian transitions literature and uh, things, uh, things like this. What does it mean to have, you know, transitions to capitalist agriculture in a country like India? What role do natural resources play? Those kinds of those kinds of questions, 
And then when I emerged from my PhD, uh, I found that the combination of a very academic PhD, which was very conceptual, I looked at two villages in detail, right? Um, uh, that made it very hard to sell myself as a policy person. Uh, the combination of a bit of climate, a bit of development, a bit of sort of, you know, agrarian transition literature, uh, institutional economics, and the fact that I was so multidisciplinary made me really ill fit for academic jobs. And I really didn't know what I was going to do. Um, and then a job came along that was interesting in a completely different way from anything I'd done before, which was to study how the shift in capital flows for development from largely public sector flows to this boom of private sector flows, which culminated in the Asian financial crisis, what that then meant for how, for the environmental quality of that growth, right? Uh, and it goes all the way back to the World Bank and the Narmada Valley Project, because what environmentalists used to do was say, we'll squeeze the bank and the bank in turn will make sure that projects uh, have decent displacement conditions and so on and so forth. Well, the question is, you can't do that if most of the money is private. Mm -hmm. So therefore, what do you do? So I was hired more on the strength of my earlier work with the Climate Action Network than on my strength of my PhD to, to manage a project called International Financial Flows in the Environment. And what I learned from that experience, and this is at the World Resources Institute, what I learned from that experience is that the climate conversation was a little sandpit off in the corner where environmentalists were sent off to play. And really the big decisions were happening in other places around regulation, around private banks, around whether or not the International Finance Co Corporation gave cover to private uh, uh, you know, uh, guarantees and, 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 and uh, uh, cross-financing to private investors in various sorts, whether there were safeguards in that money, and the flows of those monies really shaped development uh, uh, prospects. And so that led me to do deep dives on policy restructuring in the forest sector and the electricity sector in a, in, in a cross-country way. And particularly, I got really interested in the electricity sector. So basically, I approached these as mainstream development questions. What shapes how countries decide to restructure their electricity sectors. And this was the moment of privatization, liberalization, uh, and so on and so forth of the electricity sector in India and other places. I got very lucky. I was in the right place at the right time, wrote a paper called Power Politics that kind of did a historical review. And has, uh, because I think it was, it was a rare uh, sweep paper at the time, uh, uh, I was terribly thrilled because it was the headline paper in EPW, uh, uh, and so on and so forth. And I also wanted, as an aside, you know, note how incredible an institution like EPW really was. Um, you know, that same issue had papers by Amartya Sen and Jeff Sachs. Uh, but m as a fresh graduate, this paper was deemed more topical and was made the headline uh, headline paper. I got a response. I sent it off on a Friday. I got a response back from the editor on Monday, and it ran the next Friday, right? Uh, it was an incredible institution, actually, and they just decided that I, 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 this is not meant to be uh, uh, boastful. I mean, it wasn't an exceptional paper. It was just a very topical paper uh, uh, at the time, and, and, and EPW had just decided to give it some air. Um, so, so I was hooked on, on this, right? But the point I'm trying to make is that 
for me, it was about mainstream development choices. And that's what I want to work on. So I came, I then felt that sitting in the US, I, you know, it was just too stratospheric. I enjoyed my time doing research in India, in other countries on these things. And so I persuaded my partner uh, and we both made a move to India for what we thought was two or three years. And we kept extending it and kept extending it and kept extending it. And then we decided to just start going back. Um, I had flirtations with that offer. I had an I had applied for and got offered at a U.S. university, um, and decided to just double down on on staying in uh, in India. I taught at JNU for a while. I was at NIPFP for a while, and then I landed at CPR in two thousand and nine. And institutionally, it was a much more comfortable fit for me than those other institutions. They had their merits, uh, of course, but I liked the freewheeling intellectual atmosphere. It suited my multidisciplinarity uh, kind of approach, and so on and so forth. Uh, there was a lot of freedom. There was a lot of lack of hierarchy. Uh, didn't have to call anybody sir. I, I just relished, and nobody called me sir, and they still don't. I, I relished that culture. Um, but uh, but the point is that it was only in 2007 that I re-engaged climate. And that was the moment of the Bali Conference of Parties when what was on the table is Okay, developed countries were supposed to have done something. They didn't particularly. What were developing countries going to do? Right? And the answer was, well, let's do a bunch of action plans and see. And the act of doing those plans would themselves be signs of what we're doing. Now, the interesting thing is, those plans became a really important way to bring the development and climate conversation together. Until that moment, the objective was really, let's treat this as a diplomatic problem and separate out climate and development. And so I chose to focus on development questions like the electricity restructure. Right? But post Bali and post those plans, the plans in India came around 2009, but there was conversation about them starting 2007. That was sort of the bridge moment. That was, there was an interesting space where one could ask the question, how do you do development while keeping in mind climate change, both on the mitigation and the adaptation side? And should we be doing that? So that's where I saw the opening. And that's where I sort of, in a sense, I came to CPR to try and build a platform through which to ask that question. Um, <clears throat> this is jumping ahead a little bit, but I'm curious whether the fact that some of these are still the same conversations that you were having almost all the way back in the in the early 90s, the question of where development sits alongside environment, the question of like carbon markets and offsets, the question of, you know, whether we should integrate these two things, persuading people that, you know, the climate is not something to be put in a little box. Is it frustrating that some of these things are still threads that you have to to you know, play through, or or do you see feel like there's been enough linear growth on on that question? It's not just cyclical, where every few years we go back to the same concerns. You know what's interesting is it's by no means a closed loop. We're not in the same position we have that we've always been in, um, and the main reason uh, is shift in the economics and the technology and the consequent shift in the politics. But the underlying uh, political dynamics have remained the same, which is why the same conversations come back 
again and again, right? So for in the in the in the two thousand nines, uh, in the two thousands and early two thousand tens, there was a lot of continuity with the Agarwal Narayan global warming in an unequal world story, right? For reasons of equity, we shouldn't, uh, 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 you know, the North has to lead in a serious way, right? With the planning idea, you got to ask, and the plans were meant to, in a sense, and this is another theme in my work, right? That basically, oftentimes, you create institutions that are set up as Trojan institutions, right? And that also true in some ways of regulatory bodies and electricity. Well, what is that? What's, what's the harm in hiring a regulator and maybe a couple of other members and a car and a driver and a pune and a desk? What difference does it make? Right? It's a that was almost the thinking back back in the late 1990s. But once you create those institutions, you have different ways of telling a conversation, and you bring different players to the table. So the plans and the national action plan serve that purpose. So it's plans. Narratives and politics, right? So the plan was the institutional shift. The narrative shift that it brought about was the use of the term co-benefit, which, which frankly I've yammered on enough about for the last decade that people roll their eyes every time I bring it up at a meeting, uh, and people, you know, increasingly they, they give me the kindness of associating some of my work with that term. Not that I came up with it; the action plan came up with it, but I tried to kind of expand on what it meant, how you operationalize it, and so on and so forth. Co-benefits basically says there may be some places where what you would do for development also brings, incidentally, climate gains on the mitigation or the adaptation side. And maybe instead of just treating these as serendipitous, let's go out and look for them. And also let's identify where there are trade-offs and avoid those trade-offs. So more public transport as a part of your urbanization. Rethink your urbanization patterns themselves. Thinking about the choice between rail, road and rail and versus rail freight, these are development choices, right? But they're also climate choices, and in many cases they can be made to work together. So let's try and do that, particularly since India is locking in to our infrastructure. So, for example, if we choose to build, you know, there's this number that gets thrown out all the time: two thirds of India's buildings are yet to be built. They say, okay, if that's the case, whether you build your building envelope in a way that requires a lot of active cooling or whether it can actually manage a lot of passive cooling through your design of the building itself, through the materials, through shutters on the windows, etc., etc., that will basically determine your future need for cooling over the next 30, 40 years. So let's actively look for those things. And that kind of logic, you know, energy efficiency is a great idea, uh, is a great example of that thinking in a sense, right? We want to have energy efficiency, not for climate reasons, but because uh, a, a watt saved, a so-called megawatt, is the same as a watt generated, which is a megawatt, right, or a megawatt generated. In fact, it's better because you're cutting out the, dis the, the distribution losses, right? So it's you know, 1.x, 1.2, 1.3 times a megawatt. So uh, we should be doing it anyway, because then we have to have less capital investment in a, in a new power plant. Uh, and it's also good for the climate, so why not? Um, now, fortunately, there were a few people in government who opened doors for a few of us, then young ones. Uh, I was appointed to some planning commission committees on a five-year plan, low-carbon committee for uh, 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 
a committee for low carbon growth and so on and so forth. Uh, so I had a few sort of policy openings to propound uh, these ideas. And then we started building a wonderful team at CPR to take it forward. Uh, I had a, a great partnership with Navanya Rajamani, who is a leading international lawyer uh, and has become even more leading in the years since uh, working on climate change. Uh, so we had a we had a very good group, and it was a relatively small field, uh, and 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 um, uh, it was there was a lot of lot of space to have a conversation. One of the things we also did is when the Copenhagen conference kind of fell apart a little bit, uh, we co-edited a special issue of the journal Climate Policy, where we said, look, what does the future hold? And we substantially anticipated not just us, many others also what the Paris Agreement would say, right? The idea of kind of a, a, an international ratchet, but the driver being a lot of bottom-up national actions. And we sort of tried to spell out what that would mean. So we were able to also play in and have international engagement. Uh, we had a, a really interesting international conference that resulted in a bunch of papers and ideas, bringing a lot of leading people together. So there was lots of scope at that time to drive things through the power of ideas. But the but but I'm, I'm departing from your question, which is you know have things changed? What has really changed though is that that was always marginal politics. A little bit of cool benefits here and there at the margin, where the opportunity presented itself. So the national solar mission, which came up at the time, was an energy security driven idea in India, but it was a climate idea when it was marketed overseas, and I think that's fine. Because I think the, the point of mainstreaming climate change is you use, you tell whichever story makes most sense for the context that you're in. Right? Yeah. Um, so so that, was, that was how it was, uh, it was sort of uh, uh, set up. Um, but it was that marginal, opportunistic kind of approach. Fast forward to the budget last month. Green growth was invoked a dozen times or more. We can have a debate about whether the allocations of funds mirrored that rhetorical emphasis. And I think there's a debate to be had about that. But it's clear that both political and economic motivations are now closely tied to hitching your wagon to the energy transition. And that's because that shift has happened where you where countries see political gain and potential economic gain from being leaders in green, uh, uh, low-carbon technologies. That's a huge shift. Now, that that transition will happen is now inevitable. But the fact that it might be costly and there'll be winners and losers remains the case, right? What has changed is the presumption of being a loser was very high. Now, the possibility of being a winner has become higher. But the politics of making sure that you are in the winner's column and not in the loser's column remains. And so some of the questions remain the same. Equity and allegation of the carbon budget. Whether or not there's going to be slippery offsets and, 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 and gaming of that uh, uh, offset situation. Who's going to be taken on the mat through the transparency parts of the climate regime? So everybody wants, you know, they are now positioning themselves for the upside but it hasn't stopped most governments in the world worrying about the downsides. And in that sense, the politics hasn't changed. But the direction of travel and the speed of travel is, very, is a very, very different story uh, than it was uh, a decade ago. 
Yeah, that, that puts it very well. So maybe then if we go back to as you were entering CPR in 2009, so when, when that conversation was quite different, um, what what were you trying to set up and, and how did maybe the climate initiative become the initiative on climate, energy, and the environment? What what was that process a little bit? Right, right, right. So, you know, when we when we came, the CPR was a, was a sort of, a, you know, a, a very loosely structured federation. Um uh, I mean, so I, I was interested in building a larger team. Uh, uh, La was really sort of much more of a pure academic, uh, but indulged me now and then at being, you know, in being part of the part of various policy conversations. And it was symbiotic. Um, so I started hiring people, just a couple of people at a time. And I really, one of the things I really wanted to do was um, I didn't want to just write academic papers. I want to do that too, but I wanted to actually change the public conversation. So I did two things for that. Uh, I wrote a paper where I kind of examined the politics of different constituencies in India. And I came up with this framing where I said, look, uh, you have a category that you might call the growth first stonewallers, right? Who say climate change is an excuse to hold back the South. And we should just be focused on maintaining as much freedom for our choice of development. The second category you might call the progressive realists who say climate change is serious we are worried about it but the rest of the world is not particularly worried about it and therefore we have to be realist about this and make sure that we protect india's interests and the third group might be called progressive internationalists where they said climate change is serious we should be part of the voices that in a somewhat idealistic way build a global consensus for action and india should be part of that solution, not necessarily getting out ahead of everybody else, but at least being part of figuring out how to move the world community. And that sort of three-part categorization took hold. A lot of some other academics picked that up in their writing about it and so on and so forth. So it became a way to try and understand the politics and it gave a political prescription, which is let's move, let's try and move the debate in the direction of the progressive internationalists. We need more of them, right? And we need to we need to understand where the realists come from, bring some of them on board, uh, uh, and we need to isolate the stonewalls because we think you have to both take you do have to take development seriously, but you also have to take climate seriously. It's in India's interest. We're a deeply vulnerable country, but we have to walk that line in a way where we don't take it seriously by shortchanging ourselves. So it's a delicate balancing act. And therefore, the co-benefits idea was so powerful because it meant you could actually, if co-benefit, if there were very, very few co-benefits, it's not so powerful. But if there are many, many co-benefits, then it's powerful, right? So then I, I edited a volume where I got a bunch of people engaged in the conversation. I said, we have to broaden this conversation. We have to get people interested in development, the future of business, media, etc., to engage this conversation in an accessible way. So I edited a book called The Handbook of Climate Change uh, and India. Uh, we got our diplomats to write. We got civil society activists to write. We got development activists to write. We got researchers to write. And it was a series of accessible chapters. And that was actually been is something I'm actually quite proud of because I've since heard of many young people who've entered this space have used this in, in their college and other classes. Right? We've been assigned these, these readings. Um, and I think it has helped, you know, a little bit at least broaden the conversation, make this conversation more accessible. And it opened the space 
to providing a way and a language of thinking about climate and development and how they go together, right? which was really the objective. Um, so, you know, we, 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 we putted along doing these things, adding two or three people here and there. Uh, we got, we were fortunate to get, uh, some funders. Uh, there were a few other players in the space, but not that many. Um, and then as we went along, we found that people were pigeonholing us. We were kept trying to say, look, we're about climate and development, but people only heard the first part. They thought we were only interested in negotiations. Uh, they thought we were only interested in, in you know, that we were sort of uh, um, climate activists in the sense that, you know, that, that this was about uh, um, climate as an existential problem as opposed to climate as, a, as part of a development challenge. And so I would find myself somewhat schizophrenically in India arguing for more attention to climate change and overseas arguing for more attention to development, right? And... And I think it was, uh, I can't remember which U.S. president said that, you know, the, the only thing I ever saw in the middle of the road was a yellow stripe and a dead possum. I felt like that a little bit, right? I mean, the, the, it's, a, it's a lonely place to be because people wanted to put you in a box. Either you were sort of um, blaming the West for cynically promoting climate while not taking it seriously, or you were blaming uh, India for not taking climate seriously and being short-sighted. The fact that you have to hold these contradictory realities at the same time and find a way to bring them both together uh, it was really the, it was and has been the challenge, right? Um, but what we found is that uh, we evolved a style of approach, which was to make sure that we always put things in peer-reviewed journals so our work was irreproachable. And then from there, we would write policy papers, do policy engagements. And India is a unique policy context because actually writing academic papers and books is taken seriously. They may not be read, but it gets you a seat on a committee, right? Whereas in the rest of the world, it's all about quick accessible policy briefs, certainly in the West and certainly in the US. Uh, so we also are building a kind of a, a reputation and credibility and, and paying a lot more attention to the public debate. CPR at the time was very thin on communications, so we were just doing this, you know, communications involved writing your own op-eds, so we did the same, right? But we did find ourselves getting put in this box of, of climate folks. So we did an independent review, where we, ha uh, we got somebody very thoughtful to review our five, six years of work uh, by that point, around 2015, and he wrote a wonderful report, which if I remember right, the title of which was Geeks writing for geeks or informed change makers? Question mark, right? Um, and he pushed us to think more about partnerships, more about how our work was taken seriously, and also about how we positioned ourselves. And as a result of that, we decided that actually a lot of our work, the entry point was not climate change. The entry point was development questions. You know, like with my work way back when on electricity and liberalization and so on, right? And so we realized the entry point was often air pollution. It was often climate change, but it was also often uh, electricity or environmental regulation. And so we renamed ourselves the Initiative on Climate, Energy, and Environment to try and signal the fact that we have these multiple entry points. And we were then very fortunate to sort of, you know, uh, bring on more people, uh, uh, wonderful uh, young, uh, young people. One of the challenges has been to actually retain them 
So Shibani Ghosh has been with us for a, for over a decade. Radhika Ghosh was with us for a while and then went on to be professor at Oxford. Lavanya uh, decided to move on and go to Oxford. Um, uh, I was sticking around. And so my uh, I'm really keen that this unit continue. Um, and so uh, we've been fortunate to get a, a fabulous uh, sort of next line of uh, of people, you know, with the five five to seven years experience um, uh, to work on all these areas. And now as we've proceeded, we find we're coming full circle. And with the sort of mainstreaming of climate, once again, climate and energy are becoming inseparable. So the energy transition is the leading edge of a climate conversation. So we actually kind of reorienting our work again to bring to 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 take advantage of these kind of cross linkages across uh, across all of them no just to pick on the earlier point it's something that um, that i someone who looks more at politics and sort of foreign policy and other sorts of things i do find that that a lot of the work that you do and the work that comes out of the team is always tremendously accessible and i wonder wonder how that is possible almost because oftentimes academics are uh, a little more ensconced in that world of jargon and difficulty. I understand definitely that the conversation almost compels you to be able to to take it out to a wider world, but it's something that that I almost wonder at times whether it's frustrating to have to dumb down um, so often or whether it's you see it as just part of the, the gig. You know, I, I don't actually see it as dumbing down. Um, uh, I, I think that uh, one doesn't have to use complex words and acronyms for complex ideas. I think academics hide behind the veil on this too much. And I have a couple of foundational experiences here. When I was writing my undergraduate thesis on Narmada, I, my uh, thesis supervisor was Robert Wade, uh, who's a, uh, an academic who's spent a lot of time in India. And I, he would call me into his room to review a chapter. And he would say you're just throwing around words and ideas just to conceal the fact that you don't know what you want to say. And he said, now tell me, what is this chapter about? And I would sit there and think, and then I would try sputter out a sentence, and he said, no, that's not what it's about. And then we'd sit for another three or four minutes, and I'd have a second try, and he'd say, no, that's not it either. And we'd keep on going until I found a clear articulation. And then he said, that's what this chapter is about. Write that in the first paragraph, write that in the last paragraph, and make sure every sentence in between connects to that idea. Uh, and it was enormously helpful, enormously helpful. And I became convinced, and that, and uh, you know, I similarly, uh, somebody called Rachel Sherman, who was a PhD supervisor, similarly would call me out if I if I uh, uh, got into 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 jargon. And one of the things that we've tried to achieve, frankly, in these what now thirteen years. Uh, getting out of 14 years of, of, our, of our initiative, is we've had a passage of young people come through, many of whom have gone on to do masters and PhDs in very well-reputed schools. Some of them have started coming back. Uh, some of them even rejoined CPR. Um, and an article of faith for me is that I need to make sure that everybody who passes through, certainly somebody with a master's degree, gets one or more published article to their name where they are the lead author over that time at CPR. And I normally sit with that person through 10 or 15 revisions um, uh, to, to try and, in a sense, you know, give back what people like Robert uh, 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 tried to impart to me. So it, the capacity building part of this is really 
very explicit part of our objective, right? And we've tried to remain small enough that we can provide that intensive uh, 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 feedback. And curiously enough, I was late for this call because we were just going over the revisions required for a resubmission for one of our one of our uh, wonderful younger colleagues who's just had a paper uh, accepted, but with a recent resubmission. Uh, and so, you know, spent an hour going through the comments and and talking through how we might address them. So I think that that's 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 really been. I just want to kind of uh, 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 flag that. But I, I I think that certain skills, you know, one learns on the job. How do you write an op-ed? Uh, um, the op-eds are a real skill, and that was a struggle for me because it's one thing to use simple language and concepts; it's another thing to do it in eight hundred words. Um, so that that is something that I've you know I've I've tried to get better at over time. Okay. Um, maybe that to, 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 to discuss a little bit what, what the initiative does, uh, or to demystify maybe for, for those who would like to, to know a bit more. For example, um, CPR was the sort of the anchor for the long-term low emission development strategy, um, that India put together. Um, and just, just for those who are not in the know, what, what does that actually mean? Are you, are you out there? Commissioning primary research. Are you working with people in government and outside? What? Yeah, could could you tell us a little bit of what what's actually happening behind the scenes on these things? Sure, sure. So, so let me sort of pull back a little bit and say that the the, the different ways in which we work. Right. So, one way in which a big part of the way in which we work is this kind of framing and narrative setting. How do you talk about a problem uh, approach, which was driven by the life cycle of this issue. At the time, as I said, people did not engage climate change, coming up with co-benefits, populating that, giving examples, helped to frame and structure the narrative, right? So that's a big part of what I personally uh, like to do. The second piece is problem solve. More typical think tank type stuff. Sometimes we are sitting on a committee or you see a particular policy area that is ripe for discussion. So for example, right now there's Ongoing conversation. Private members of parliament have been uh, the, uh, members of parliament have put out private members' bills, for example, on whether we should have a climate law. What should that look like? It's a very direct policy uh, question. How do you design a, a particular instrument like a carbon market? Right. So we engage in in that. That's normally ninety percent of what a think tank does. It's probably closer to 40, thirty or forty percent of what what we do. Um, uh, and then the third piece is. Uh, uh, is engaging with networks and partners to sort of, you know, uh, shape the policy landscape. And we've done that the most in the air pollution space, where we've very deliberately said, can we please not think about this as a single big problem? It is five or six sectoral problems, right? It's about transport emissions, it's about crop burning, it's about so on and so forth. And that led to my appointment to EPCA, the Environmental Protection uh, uh, Control Authority, uh, which was mandated by the Supreme Court to try and solve the air pollution problem, where I then got into problem solving mode. Right. So these are things that that link across each other. Now, the long-term low emissions development strategy process uh, is an example where we are directly invited into a formal governmental process. Uh, it actually came straight out of, or the invitation likely came out of academic work we did where we analyze different models, energy and emissions models used to project India's emissions future. And we basically show that a lot of the time, the government relies on one or two of these models 
but actually there's a whole range of them that provide very different results. And the government is often not in a position to understand the, whether the models it uses are outliers in the middle or at you know or, or where they are in the spectrum, or more important, why certain results are the way they are. Right. So we did a paper laying this all out. It was favorably received in the ministry. And so when the time came to say, well, what should India put on the table? The prior question is, do we understand what the options are? And that's precisely what we tried to invest in. So we got invited in. The way government processes work, it takes a little bit of time. Uh, uh, and we've been urging the government to, 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 to do this. So we were asked to help them design the process through which that report would be written. And then to do a first draft of the report. Be very clear, it's a report that's owned by government, but we were the handholders, right? So we designed a process where we said, let's make this a cross-government approach because climate change is not something that can only be done by the Ministry of Environment. That's one of our big points too, right? If you're thinking about climate change as a developmental issue, it's not just about environment and emissions. It's about choice of electricity system, choice of transport systems, patterns of urbanization. You have to have all those ministries in the room, right? And on the adaptation side, coastal zone management, cropping and agriculture, water resources, and so on. So we set up, helped, we suggested the ministry to set up seven working groups. We sat in on all the deliberations of those working groups. We helped them design a process where, uh, and we also prefer a more collegial style of working. And one of my pet peeves is, I think it's a problem when think tanks get into a competitive dynamic, right? Uh, because then it short changes the ability to have a discussion about your work. You're tempted to overstate the credibility of your own work because you want to, uh, in a sense, have it unquestioned. We really prefer a more deliberative style. So we brought in, uh, we suggested other peer organizations who would be part of each of those working groups based on their own skill sets and specializations. Each of those working groups produced a report with the help of those think tanks. And then we were tasked with pulling the whole thing together into a 100-page report, which Frankly, we, all, we only had two weeks to do. So it was quite an intense uh, summer. And then, of course, it goes into a process where the ministry takes ownership of it. It's a, other ministries comment. The ministry makes its own revisions. And that's as it should be. Government has to take the final call. But we basically pulled it all together uh, uh, in a way that we hoped made sense and brought together the inputs of all these working groups. And this is a process that is mandated for every country under the Paris Agreement. So that then became India's official submission uh, at the UNFCC, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change Conference of Parties. Um, so, so the work involved kind of imagining how you think about this, setting up a mechanism, and then taking a whole lot of information, you know, seven reports that were 100 to 150 pages each, and boiling them out down to a very tight 100 pages uh, with a 15-page with a executive summary. Um, uh, so, so it brought together sort of our efforts at being conceptualizers and problem solvers and people with sort of institutional imagination to think about a process where you could get lots of information, harness a lot of information from diverse perspectives. So one of the through lines I think um, that I've seen of, of the work from the beginning, but something that you seem to have put more thrust on of late is also moving from the question of looking at just climate change policies to to studying institutional frameworks and the enabling factors and systemic features that will get us towards those policies or changing for a whole government approach. Can you tell me a little bit about this like 
focus more on looking at the institutions uh, rather than the policies themselves? Honestly, um, it's been a theme of my work all along. So, you know, one of the, because I did an interdisciplinary PhD, um, my approach is more to develop toolkits and uh, frameworks of theories. And the three I basically drew on was how do you understand institutions from the perspective of economics, sociology, and political science? Right. So in economics, it's about information and asymmetries. In, in sociology, it's about normative change. And in politics, it's about the exercise of power. And each of these brings a complementary lens, is my view. So my study of carbon markets and water markets was an institutional analysis, actually, of the market as an institution. My study of electricity regulators was how are they shaping the political field of decision-making. Climate plans, the same kind of thing. It's just that now we're talking more explicitly about climate institutions per se. You know, or in my air pollution work, I've worked with my colleagues and they've led the work on state on uh, state pollution control boards. So this is actually a continuous strand. It's just that now climate change has become central enough that people are beginning to talk, think about explicitly climate institutions uh, and climate laws. And it's a really interesting question, right? Because climate is just, uh, on the mitigation side, it's just about greenhouse gases. You can't build an institution around greenhouse gases per se. You have to build an institution around all the things that lead to greenhouse gas emissions, which means you've got to think about the transport sector, the power sector, uh, crop burning, waste, agriculture, forest, deforestation. So, you know, you're, you're, you're forced to think beyond ministry-by-ministry ministry silos. Um, but at the same time, under the government's conduct of business rules, Ministry of Environment is the home base for climate change. It's in the name of the, of the, of the, of the ministry. But environment ministries in most parts of the world, and India is not really an exception, tend to be weaker, less well-staffed, less powerfully, uh, politically powerful. So, so it's a tricky institutional question. How do you design something for an all of government and all of society approach, right? Something that also is open to media, business, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, a, it's an intriguing uh, question and we've been trying to study it for a while. The other thing that I'll mention actually is that one concrete thing that led me to think about this more is I have been part of something called the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a panel of experts appointed by governments around the world to take stock of the best academic knowledge in a particular area and inform governments. It's a really interesting process because it's not just an academic review. At the end of that, you spend a week with government representatives in an almost negotiation style where you go line by line, sentence by sentence over the document, and it gets approved, discussed, negotiated, modified. So in a way that governments find acceptable. Uh, and there are different interests being represented at the same time and so on. And your job is to represent the knowledge of the science. So I was tasked with writing the section on institutions in 2012. And I found there just wasn't much literature. So I started creating some of my own literature, talking to people. And then I had to do the same chapter again, this time as, as the lead author, coordinating lead author in 2000 and when it was in 1819, which when we started, we takes it three years. We only finished uh, uh, last year. Um, and I had to update that literature. 
So academically, that's actually probably the area of literature that I'm most active in as a result of that IPCC process. And and it seems to be a nice through line from your your work where you looked at because the the chapter covers the politics as well, and so your yes from, from back when you looked at Stonewallers and and progressive realists and so on, you you're able to bring it here. Um, I one of the things that emerged last year and and struck me while we were having this discussion also. Uh, if you go back to the 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 climate action network and the whole idea that maybe it's useful to not have it just be folks in the west um some of these conversations about national subnational plans and so on I, i'm wondering from because you have this unique vantage point of like reviewing the literature that's coming out your your familiarity with things in the west um your your presence at many of these international forums does does the climate, environment, energy world also fall prey a bit to the sort of the elite mimicry or the or like looking at Western ideas and and even solutions? Um, we start with the Yale Columbia um, index mm -hmm. last year, a little bit of sort of simplifying and flattening maybe the conversation a little bit, and we've had it over the years with question of whose fault is climate change and so on. But how, how do you see it since you move so easily between? Yeah. You know, it's a really good question because actually, um, and we've seen this in the IPCC also, the West dominates the research networks. It dominates the funding. We tend to get trained. Many of us tend to get trained there. Um, and uh, uh, they dominate the funding uh, networks and they also dominate the editorial boards of journals, right? And it's not like anybody is being malevolent here. But where you sit is where you stand. If you're a U.S. academic and you care deeply about climate change, then you tend to look at things through the lens of what will move the U.S. Congress, right? For the rest of us, what will allow the U.S. Congress to be progressive is a very limiting question. And if it requires... So, so, so there was a whole decade when the main question is, how do we get India and China to do something, anything, such that we can go back to the U.S. Congress and say we're not, not alone on this. And so we became kind of and I used to tell my Western friends, you know, other countries have politics too, um, and they're often more complicated. Um, so one of the things when I came back to India is I made it really clear that my objective was not going to be to sign up to research projects where I was asked to do the India chapter of a study that was conceptualized elsewhere. If I was going to be part of a study, I had to be part of a conceptualization of it and ideally lead the conceptualization of it. And that has actually been true. Workshops we've organized, books we've edited, we have initiated it. For this recent project on climate institutions, we looked at eight countries with leading academics around the world I wrote the framing paper and I organized the workshops and obviously in collaboration with everybody else, but I was leading that, right? So it then allows us to view the world, to bring, so, so you know, different people, as I said, where you sit is where you stand. So different people bring their different frameworks and that's fine. The interesting thing is how do you reconcile those and take seriously all those different perspectives as opposed to anoint one of them 
uh, the the dominant perspective. So it's and it's it's been an uphill battle, including in the IPCC, right? Because there are these research teams, highly powered, well-funded research teams that dominate the literature. They dominate, as I said, the editorial boards. Uh, I've sat on something called the Emissions Gap Report Steering Committee for six or seven years that UNEP puts out every year. Uh, and every year, I think it to an apple to take seriously the fact that if you want to inform what developing countries do, you have to think about emissions choices as an adjunct to development choices. And I often get the pushback that says, this isn't a development report. I was like, sorry, you're missing the point. These aren't separable things, right? Um, so, so it is. It is the, the, this battle for kind of the narrative high ground is a really important battle. And ironically, actually, um, there is often a presumption that Indian academics who engage in international fora are just spewing out what we learn over there. Whereas in actual fact, we are often contesting those narrative frames and we're performing a useful job in, in, in at least budging them a little bit. Um, there's a very interesting battle going on right now, for example, on how do you decide, you brought up the Yale, uh, the Yale um, uh, uh, Environmental Performance Index. And in fact, uh, along with Sharad Lelia, I wrote an op-ed about this. Uh, um, and the big failure that they that the, the big uh, flaw in how they went about it is they looked at the flows of emissions in other words how much a country emits uh, in any given year and the trend in that versus the stock of emissions or how much they've accumulated over time so western countries are the downslope yes but starting from a much higher base right and India starting is on the upslope but starting from a much lower base um, that is relevant to how you discuss uh, uh, progress. And so it is really important to push back uh, on these uh, on these frameworks. And I think that's something that gets underappreciated, right? In India and in academia, people, uh, there's a separation between academia and policy debate and dialogue. It's changing a bit. Whereas, for example, in the US, public intellectuals operate out of universities and are very engaged in policy and public conversations. Right, and so I think that in India it tends to come out more from the think tanks, uh, but I think it's a very important role to play, not just to be in the policy space, but to be in the interpreting and narrative space. And maybe if I could then ask you about maybe not exactly the flip side of that, but but a version of that within India. Then another thing that I've noticed in a in a bunch of your work over the years is the idea that just dealing with the country or the nation is not enough. We have to look at subnational and and uh, yeah. to think of it from the bottom up, um, you you worked on the state action plans. You looked at them uh, a decade ago. You often spoke about more federal approaches. So, so is that something you feel like you've been heard on? Has there been movement on that front? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question. And, and, and just just to, to close it up on the biggest question, I think one of the strengths of CPR is in fact that narrative frame. Uh, a narrative framing role, right? Many other think tanks tend to be much more instrumental. Change is defined as a measurable outcome in a particular policy, whereas I think we think of change more expansively as changing the way you talk about something or think about a problem as being very uh, important. It's harder to track your impact, but if you do have an impact, 
because it's higher upstream, it has much larger outcomes. So on the, on the federal issue, uh, you know, it is it is something I will confess. Uh, um, I have come to a bit later than I wish I had. I did indeed look at state action plans. I think 2013, 14, we were the first people to do studies of them, but we didn't do it deep enough and we didn't follow up on it enough. We did have colleagues who looked at city plans and city uh, uh, and climate uh, issues, leakages. And that was actually a really constructive thing for a few years. When they moved on, however, we, we were unable to sustain that. And I'll just say as an aside here, one of the strengths and weaknesses of CPR is we empower people to work on what they want to work on. But as a result, when they choose to move on, we're not necessarily hiring to fill those shoes. We're hiring other people to do what they want to work on. So continuity, there's a trade-off between continuity and kind of creativity and ownership there. Um, but on the subnational work, you know, we now have a whole new area of work opening up, looking at heat action plans, as you mentioned. States are starting to think about climate institutions and laws. At the state level, there are a lot of factors that will uh, uh, impact states as a result of climate change. So a lot of the climate impacts issues around water, around urbanization, and so on and so forth are state issues, right? So those actions have to be led by the states. Um, and they're gearing up to do this, but the capacity at the states is even thinner than 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 at the at the center. Uh, so the question is, how much should the center need? How much should the center enable? What's that kind of relationship uh, uh, in Indian federalism for climate change? And we actually make the case that we should be thinking seriously about how Indian federalism operates, given the likely challenges uh, uh, of, uh, of climate change. Um, there's also sort of a cycle to this, right? I mean, uh, we saw this with the electricity work. States led the move to have electricity regulators and to create laws for them. And the center was playing catch up and then passed a central law. We might see the same kind of dynamic happening. So ironically, if you want to shape what happens at the center, you might actually be well advised to think about what's happening in the states because then then the center you know, will sort of engage uh, knowing that these narratives are being set and defined in, in multiple states. And for cohesion, it might help to have uh, a tighter central narrative. So there's an interesting interplay there. But yeah, we're very much um, interested in and trying to gear up to engage more at the state level. And also at the city level for that scale, for that for that matter. Um, over the course of this conversation, we haven't focused too much on on specifics uh, that that I know you're asked about a lot and you write about as well. Questions of 1.5 degrees and and specific mitigation, adaptation, and so on things. But I'm I'm curious, maybe just as we get towards the end of this conversation, where you think the next thrust is going to be over the last year or so we've had the question of loss and damage come up internationally we're, we're talking about polycentric approaches about a climate change ready state where where do you think the conversation is going where would you like it to go um both globally and at the indian level you know um i'm a little bit of an iconoclast on this the global narrative is about keeping 1.5 alive that is making sure we are still on track to limit warming to 1.5. Behind closed doors, many serious scientists will say that that, that door is pretty much closed. Uh, the IPCC basically says uh, in the report I was part of, though I didn't work on this bit, that we would have to um, 
peak emissions by 2030, uh, sorry, peak emissions by 2025 globally and reduce emissions by 40 or 50% by 2030. That is highly unlikely. That is highly unlikely. Um, uh, in order to keep to 1.5, uh, that is, and that is highly unlikely. You know, we're in this weird space where we designed something called the Paris Agreement, which was a learning by doing agreement. Every country goes home, figures out what it can put on the table, tries to implement it, sees how costly it is, and it comes back and ramps up their pledge after five years. The challenge is to get to 1.5, you don't have time for that cycle to play out. So we've designed a global mechanism that is incompatible with the scale of the target. In a two-degree world, that cycle would have worked out. In a 1.5-degree world, it's harder to work out. So what I see, to come into your question, what I see is the tension between that target and the institutional mechanism coming home to roost. There's something called the global stock take, which is meant to take stock of where we are. I'm hoping that in a productive way, this tension gets emerges uh, in the global conversation, right? The other thing that I anticipate happening is that the conversation has moved so much to the national level that there's a wonderful paper that I cite a lot called uh, uh, Prisoners of the Wrong Dilemma, which basically alludes to the fact that we think of climate change as a prisoner's dilemma game. No country will act unless every other country acts or most other countries act. And what these people say in this paper is, actually, countries tend to act when their domestic politics aligns with them acting, irrespective of what other countries are doing. And we've seen that with the US and the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, They found a way very narrowly to get that political system to agree to this. I think it's going to be really game-changing in the sense that the Europeans have now fallen to life. India is starting to talk about green industrial policy. We're also making on, and there's that really. But the conversation has changed a lot. Now lies in being focused on uh, low carbon growth sectors. What does that mean for the international process? It basically might drive a wedge where what countries do at home is increasingly divorced from this ambition, so-called ambition cycle overseas. So to, uh, the, 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 use the, the process of being stretched. Um, the system, the linkages between different parts of the system are actually being stretched in ways where uh, uh, the regime might get pulled out of shape entirely in the next two or three years. Um, I'm not sure that that's entirely a bad thing because I think if we had the, the thing to bank on most is that domestic political economies, especially the top five to ten economies, that if the politics line up in favor of low carbon futures, that's probably the most important change we need to see on the mitigation side of things. It may mean more global conflict, uh, 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 because in, particularly in the in the trade realm. Um, but we're at a very interesting moment where that apparatus of Paris and the way in which we thought things would unfold, uh, with this neat greenhouse gas or carbon denominated targets being ramped up over time, uh, that may not in fact be the 
the driving factor. The driving factor may be competitiveness concerns around low carbon futures. Um, and 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 for for your own work, maybe if I maybe in a short way, if if, if you had a I don't know if this is a useful question, but if you had a, a blank check in realistic timeline, what would you like to see research put into? What what would you where would you see like to see that sort of work going towards? So um, maybe I'll tell you in India to begin with a little less. So I I I would I would like to see. I mean, some of this we're obviously trying to do. Uh, uh, I would like to see a lot more preparedness at the state level and at the central level for these very complex questions around how does India prepare for the future in terms of technology, in terms of in terms of technology, in terms of adaptation, in terms of linking different issue areas. Um, uh, so that's also one set of things. The other is, I think that we really have to work hard on figuring out how India can create jobs through low carbon technologies of the future. And we need to, you know, so there's this rush now to the hydrogen economy. It may be a great bet. Then it may be overplaying our chips. I don't know. And I fear that often we, we make the bet a little bit before we've done the, the homework. So having a slightly better informed architecture, I think it's really great that you're beginning to place these bets. Don't get me wrong. I'd rather we were, but I'd rather we place them after a bit more due diligence and conversation uh, uh, and understanding uh, the trade-offs across across uh, placing uh, across placing uh, these uh, these bets but I think I think this um, uh, uh, I mean this isn't only a technology conversation I want to make sure that I make that very clear these transitions technology driven transitions require institutions politics, and policy ought to be lined up. So we have to think, for example, we have to think, for example, what is the electricity system of the future in India? How do we, we've done such a poor job grappling with 20th century problems about discoms, distribution companies that are uh, in the red, uh, uh, intermittent supply for poor people, um, uh, you know, a system of cross subsidies that burdens our industry with very high prices. How is all of this going to pivot in a low carbon way? And one of the ideas that my colleagues have put out there is what we're calling productive power, which is that maybe we should be thinking less about um, subsidizing consumption of electricity, but we need to be thinking about subsidizing the productive use of electricity so that poorer people are better in a position to then actually uh, have income generating activities as a result of more electricity. So if you get electricity and that is more than, you know, two lights and a fan, but that actually allows you to enhance your income, you're more likely to be willing to pay for that electricity, right? So, and then how do you do that on the back of renewable energy? So we need to be thinking about, it comes back to my standard story. We need to be thinking about development choices through the lens of climate, uh, through the lens. So we be, should be looking at not climate transitions, but low carbon development transitions, right? And we need to be doing that in sector after sector, in electricity, in transport, in heavy industries, and so on and so forth. So that's really where I would put the focus. And I think that that is something that needs to be replicated and cross-pollinated across countries. I like to ask what 
what misconceptions do you find yourself having to combat the most, whether it's from people in the media, whether it's fellow scholars, or whether it's the lay public? Are there things that almost pet peeves that you constantly have to tell people know that that you're getting this wrong over and over? Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are. Uh, so um, I'll start with the air pollution, right? Um, I think it's changing a bit now, but I think the extent to which India's air pollution is exposing us to very severe long-term health damages um, is still underestimated. Uh, I've had a member of parliament in a discussion say to me, I don't see people holding their throat walking down the street. Why do you think it's so bad? It's a long-term insidious effect on people's health and their vulnerability. And I think and I think we're not fully appreciating that. Uh, it doesn't have to necessarily feel bad in the short run, though our levels are high enough that it frequently does. Um, so, so the air pollution issue is one. Sometimes um, on climate change, people think there's still a scientific debate about whether it's happening or not. Uh, I met somebody who's a very erudite um, uh, uh, person uh, who's been in and out of government. He's been writes regularly in the papers, and uh, he said, "Well, you know, maybe there are other reasons to explain the warming trend." And I was like, "Look, we have something called the Vostok ice core data that goes back." you know, tens if not hundreds of thousands of years, I think it's hundreds of thousands of years, which shows a correlation between CO2 and global average temperatures. You know, the science is really actually very sophisticated on this. We have modeling studies that reinforce things that the science says. So I think we need to move, you know, beyond this uh, uh, a little bit. But I recognize that in both these cases, these are harms that, because they're systemic, are very hard to wrap your head around. Right? It's not like cutting a tree, uh, 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 you know, in 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 the green belt in Delhi in front of your eyes. It's not as tangible as that. Uh, it's not flooding a, a a valley for a dam in front of your eyes. Right? I understand that, and I think it's it's really the onus is on us to communicate it better, uh, um, and 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 signal both the systemic nature of this. And find ways of talking about it in ways that people can relate to. So climate change is not, as I said, just really about emissions. It's about what does it mean for the productivity of labor? What does it mean for crop damage? What does it mean for flooding of cities? What does it mean for the intensity of storms? These are things that people can relate to. And that's really the way we have to uh, um, uh, communicate. So I, you know, I, I, I try not to think of it as a frustration. I think of it as, a, as an important task to communicate better. Um, you covered a little bit what areas you'd like to see more research in, um, uh, but or, or more attention to at least. Um, but for younger scholars entering the field or interested in this space, are there tools or approaches that you would like to see people pick up? What What would you recommend for for yeah. young person who's paying attention to this space? So, so you know, I I um, I've always been kind of a bit. I've always been interested in multiple, in bringing multiple lenses to bear, like, as I signaled with that, different kinds of institutional approaches. And I think it's really important to be conversant and comfortable with numbers. You don't actually have to be the person generating the numbers, but you must be able to look critically at the numbers. 
and this is a outgrowth of my interdisciplinary PhD. We had a course. The book that we used, written by one of our professors, was consider a spherical animal. And how do you um, make sensible assumptions about how much, how many shoes you can make for, from the skin of that animal? And then from there, it got increasingly complicated. How many acres of land would you need to provide 50% of India with solar power? And you could do this through sort of back of the envelope calculations. I think that's incredibly powerful. It stayed with me. On the other hand, I think it's really important to also be literate about social science methods. Most of my work has been done through interview and documentary analysis and through interpretation. Now, some of the things I've written, people will say, well, this is just journalistic. And first of all, you know, you'll appreciate this. I don't think one should put the, the appellation just before journalism. It's a very skilled and important profession. But the trick really relies in how are you rigorous in drawing your inferences and making sure that you're rooting your findings in empirical work, right? Through cross-referencing your interviews, double-checking the information you find out, and, and, and so on and so forth. So there's a space for both qualitative and, and, and quantitative work. What I, my pet peeve, however, is that the overuse of certain simplifying quantitative assumptions can lead to what Herman Daly called the fallacy of false concreteness. Just because you put a number around something doesn't mean it's real. And we see this all the time. What is the cost of India reaching its net zero target by 2070? $10 trillion, $12 trillion, $15 trillion. All those numbers are, are substantially made up because we have no idea what the technology cost curve looks in 2070. And I, the way I like to tell people this is, imagine, and I'm old enough to actually imagine this, that you're sitting in 1970 thinking about the technologies available to us in 2020. That's the same gap as 2020 to 2070. And if anything, the space of technology technology has sped up. We would have got it violently wrong. We wouldn't have a clue about the costs. So trying to project these things and then trying to transmit, transmute them to, to quantitative uh, dollar uh, or rupee calculations is, is you know, so, so that's why it's important to be able to be literate both on both sides of the quantitative and qualitative divide. I think that's a good skill to have. And then, you know, you're, you're pre, you might be predisposed to more to, to your own tools being more uh, of one uh, or the other sort. But if you want to be in public policy, I think you need to be able to ask good questions about all sorts of data. And and finally, if uh, we've talked about a bunch of these, but if, if you had to point to two or three of, you know, your pieces of work over the years, again, for someone who's who's listened to this conversation, who's who's curious about this, and that that's ideally you know open access that we can we can point to in in the notes. Are there any particular things that that you would point to that maybe not your favorite bits, but the things that you think uh, you know would would make sense for someone who's curious to go further? Yeah, um, you know, I, I'm I'm very attached to the paper I mentioned early in this conversation, uh, the 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 power politics uh, paper where I kind of mapped out the the trajectory of Indian uh, power. I, I really enjoyed that one, and and I think it 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 it, it filled a niche. Fast forwarding all the way to 2022, I really really enjoyed the creative process of working with people around the world uh, in coming up with a framework 
for how you think about climate institutions. It really hadn't been done before. It was a cross-country uh, uh, effort by many of us working together. And uh, it was published in Science, which sort of gives it a certain sort of imprimatur as well, uh, as well as, uh, you know, the, the detailed papers were published somewhere else. And it's something that has sparked quite a lot of conversation. It's something that has led to uh, a follow-up uh, uh, work uh, by others. Uh, uh, a recent paper uh, sort of cited this and, and said, you know, it was building on it and so on, which is always gratifying to feel that you've sort of uh, helped to, to spark an area uh, of, of work. And I guess a, a third paper I would pull out or a couple of papers are tracking the in a, in, a, in a publication called Wires, uh, Wires Climate Change, uh, tracking the evolution of the Indian climate policy debate and how it's, uh, and how it's evolved over time from an equity-focused debate to a co-benefits debate to something that's now focused more on uh, industrial policy and the language of opportunity. Um, these are all, uh, uh, all papers that I, that I have enjoyed doing um, quite a lot. Thank you for listening to the first episode of CPR Perspectives. Subscribe to this podcast feed for future interviews with CPR faculty. And you can also follow the series by signing up to our newsletter, which will be linked in the show notes. For more information on CPR's work, you can follow the center on Twitter at CPR underscore India or log on to the website at www.cprindia.org. I'm at Rohan V on Twitter. And you can also read my newsletter, India Inside Out, on Indian politics, foreign policy and history at rohanvenkat.substack.com.